0: Welcome to the 1CA Podcast, this is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassociate.org. I'll have those in the show notes.
1: One in this guy said, Hey, I want to get some background. And he kept asking background stuff. And it's like, OK, they knew where I raised and what my favorite food was, but we never talked about anything substantive.
0: <laughs> well, I would love to start with your conflict negotiations background. And then move into your work as a law enforcement officer and then go into anti-corruption and illicit networks in Canada. How about that?
1: Okay, sounds great.
0: Today we welcome Calvin Krusty, a retired member of the RCMP who worked conflict negotiation with the UN and Canadian Armed Forces during the Bosnian War. After the conflict, Calvin used his skills to also conduct international hostage negotiations and then got into counter-criminal And state sponsored threat networks. In this episode, Calvin talks about his experience in conflict and hostage negotiation and shares tips and tricks to help people in the field with relationship building and negotiations. So please join me in welcoming Calvin to the show. Well, probably
1: where I first professionally was engaged in conflict negotiations, other than the average normal. Police function.
0: Or with was your wife.
1: On. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It <laughs> uh, was probably upon my first tour with the UN in the former uh, Yugoslavia at the height of the war in 1993, where I was deployed as a peacekeeper, was the mission, but in reality, quickly learned it was peacemaking because there was no peace to keep at that time. It started off with a a Serbian military officer and his father being abducted and kidnapped by the Croatian military, and then quickly evolved to a counter-Croatian military officer and others being kidnapped. And the warring parties were looking for people to assist and support. I uh, was approached by the uh, families of the warring parties and the families of the hostages, and quickly got immersed in the world of conflict negotiations. And my background on it, other than in human source cultivations, or in my other job that I held... I quickly, what job was that? Uh, I was in drug enforcement at that time in Vancouver, focused at the target team looking at mothership operations globally and working with the U.S. and other uh, international agencies in the uh, early 90s.
0: So you learned humit from... Working basically with leads in on the ground to track motherships
1: yeah that, that was part of it, but I had worked a significant amount of human work in a number of criminal settings. It quickly transformed when I was in the, the former Yugoslavia to be very useful because of a similar skill set i e rapport building, trust building, something that was virtually absent in these type of settings, and probably one of the top bills probably required in that. And I didn't at that time know how to spell the word negotiation, and I uh, learned it from the school of hard knocks.
0: Right. And you also had experienced some really traumatic moments. I remember in our last conversation, you were talking about executions in front of you and other events that were happening as you're trying to build trust with these groups.
1: Yeah. I mean, in this particular setting, there was significant exposure to traumatic situations because we were being used by the warring parties as a trust mechanism in such things as missing persons, which equate to mass graves. So Correct. we were uh, being used in shuttle diplomacy. At that time, I was the first UN person allowed into detention centers in the war, like the military detention center. Going into those settings, obviously, there was a significant issue regarding torture and, uh, other type of situations. And then when I wasn't in the detention centers, we were doing body exchanges, which wasn't the most pleasant type of negotiations I've ever done. And that was basically truckloads of bodies being swapped for truckloads of dead bodies on the other side.
0: And I don't mean to drag you through all that. I apologize.
1: No, no, that's okay. I'm fine with it.
0: Well, the exposure though, I know that's tough, but also... Why were they dragging you into that type of negotiation? Was it to shock you or to see if you would break or to build trust? What was going on?
1: The warring parties in this particular case were genuinely interested in looking for people that could assist them to deal with this very acute, underlying, perpetuating, intense, intractable conflict, which, again, I I reference... The U.S. experience in Vietnam probably the one of the most aggravating, open wounds of a war is that POW issue, and the guy we're dealing with. I think we're genuinely knowing that they needed a third party to do it. I was a really young guy at that time. I was 29 years old, and I came into that war about a year into it. There was tens of thousands of UN folks in it, but there weren't that many people that were stepping into this arena full of atrocity and a lot of unpleasant experience. And so I, I think there was a genuine interest from the warring parties. They realized needed a trusted mechanism for shuttle diplomacy between the two different sides where they could build some trust amongst each other by sharing some uh, very dark secrets that weren't going to put them in jeopardy, sure. you know, in terms of an international court and what weren't going to get them jammed up or into a situation politically.
0: Yeah, that's a tough role to, to be in the middle of.
1: Yeah, it was a really tough role, and to be quite honest, it seemed very surreal. I still reflect back on it, and that's 30 years ago, and then it still seems not a little surreal, completely surreal. Sure. For somebody growing up in Canada, the U.S., or otherwise, it's really hard to fathom those type of situations unless you, you've lived through them. And I... I still, even though I've lived through them, I still kind of reflect on, was that a dream?
0: Yeah, I can imagine that it it goes off into the back corners of your mind as this isn't really real. This is more of a dreamscape than actually facing that reality. So, and I apologize again for dragging you through it. I I just nope. wanted to get some context nope. about it.
1: Hey, Jack, it's, it's something I think that's really important for people to talk about. I talk about it all the time at universities when I teach negotiations and everybody goes, hey, how do you do all those real interesting, cool things and that. But I, I did them through the school of hard knocks and there's no shortcuts doing it. And although probably I would safe to say that probably some of the darkest moments of my life, they were probably some of the most rewarding, cherished moments of my life, including sure. li- lifelong friendships that came out of it. So more positive than good.
0: Okay. And... Do you have any recommendations for folks that are working in the field on negotiations? I hope most of the people on this podcast are not dealing with that level of violence or extreme behavior, but I'm sure you had some takeaways.
1: It's actually a great question, probably one that you didn't think about, but a very good intuitive question. Because as I mentioned, I didn't know how to spell the negotiation. And I've spent 30 years trying to figure out what made it so successful. When I didn't know anything about negotiation strategies, tactics, or processes, what made me so successful in those moments and during that context. If I was to go, hey, what's the top three things? And I'm quick, trying to panic in my head. Go, what are the top three things? <laughs> <laughs> but one comes to mind is genuine, heart-driven empathy. I care for people. I respect people. I think I learned that my childhood from uh, two great parents that instilled the right virtues, principles, values, and belief systems upon myself. And that drove me through the adversity of those difficult negotiations. The second thing I would probably suggest was just being really humble in the process. And again, I learned this from my family background and I was looking at these people, unlike other people were looking at them, and probably kind of was tied into my human background, and that was really looking at the people as people and not thinking I was smarter than they were. Because I realized that although they were perhaps farmers from a war-torn country or They weren't Western democratic countries. I always was cautious in terms of thinking that they may always be smarter than myself. And I kept that at the back of the mind that allowed me to analyze and anticipate problems and issues and impediments and challenges and risk within the negotiation process. And I think the last one would probably be, again, more about a principle and value in terms of the negotiation process. And I took that when I was dealing with these people as well. So those would probably be the three things. Empathy, the humbleness, and uh, the respect. And the empathy was my motivator. The humility was my analyzer. And uh, my respect, I think, was my rapport builder.
0: Oh, interesting. I've never heard it dissected that way.
1: I've never heard it that way until you asked the question.
0: (laughs) And it's really simple. It's similar to Chris Voss, who was the FBI's hostage negotiator for a long time until he retired and started his own book called Never Split the Difference.
1: Yes. I I mean, Chris and I have uh, worked together. I met Chris after 9-11. Coincidentally, the FBI had asked Chris as one of their negotiators to uh, travel to Phoenix for a meeting after 9-11 to best practices, lessons learned, better uh, social psychological theories to deal with uh, terrorism. And at the same time, they asked Chris, they asked myself to attend the meetings with Chris. And uh, we attended and met with uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini. And uh, that really gave us like unbelievable insight to the social psychology laboratories and the research they had done over several decades in the field of persuasion and influence and negotiations.
0: Which are tangentially the names of his books, Persuasion and Influence, Yeah, which I've read both. They're terrific and insightful. The funny thing about it, he wrote the books to document the practices of influence and persuasion, but when people read them, they flipped it to where they became the guidebook for creating influence and persuasion.
1: Yes, and I think something that's not talked about those books, for those that are interested in the field of... uh negotiations and conflict, it's almost like a curse, because I had the benefit of studying it so much, you know, with the interaction with Dr. Cialdini, and then subsequently, uh, you know, traveling down there, taking courses through his research. More importantly, something that's not talked about it that much about them, which I think readers and many others would benefit, is the ability to use his research For defensive purposes, not only offensive purposes. So he talks about how to use them to accelerate relationship building and trust building. But when you understand them uh, intimately, you can quickly identify and mitigate when others are using these methods against you in a non-genuine manipulative way. And it's a very good defensive method. And, And sometimes, it's a bit of a curse because you're having an interaction with somebody, and they start doing it, and all of a sudden you you start feeling your uh, your uh, inside your spider uh, sense starts
0: going it. off. You're like, yeah. this guy's trying yeah. to work me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you had that moment where you're in negotiations and you're like, wait a minute, this guy's this guy's trying to push a button
1: daily. I got a I've got a 16-year-old uh, stepson that uh tries to use them all the time often. He read
0: Robert's books and he said I'm going to try that one next.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and LinkedIn where I think maybe we met has a lot of it. If you read some of the posts, you know, in the field of negotiations, there's built-in tactical considerations in some of the language sometimes I find. Oh yeah.
0: I see all kinds of trigger words in posts as well as where they're trying to use a motive language in order to get you to sway one way or another on an issue. Yeah. Okay, so w- this is where you were, and now you've been also working throughout Canada on spotting foreign malign influence yes. and corruption, right?
1: Yes. I did come back after several tours in the war there and got involved with community complex. You know, and I'm talking about the... Violence, kind of blockades, standoffs—not as violent as Waco, but you know, similar group dynamics. And then uh, overseas, dealing with a lot of terrorist incidents in terms of kidnappings, which you uh, referred to earlier. In terms of the negotiations, where people were actually executed during the course of the negotiations. Right. And then my work back here was in the investigative world, essentially the majority of my uh, career. And then from about 2007 onward, involved transnational organized crime activities, particularly with a focus on Chinese networks, Iranian networks, and cartel operations. That continued on to working intimately with the U.S. entities, including Special Operations Division of the DA, but also working with the FBI, Homeland Security, and then in the broader context of the Five Eyes. and then in 2018, after uh, working in that space, I went into the private sector where I, uh, I decided uh, I had enough of the public sector and I was about to try to pivot into a new area that I quickly realized I wasn't going to get spousal support from, which was I wanted to go be a bartender and
0: that <laughs> lasted for about a day. You got vetoed and, on being a bartender? And, uh,
1: I got beat veto for being a bartender. <laughs> I didn't plan on retiring at all. And, you know, I thought I'd do another couple of years. And then one day I just walked back to the office after uh, a week of training with some young guys. And I thought, man, that was pretty enjoyable. And then the next thought that went through my head was, man, that was fun working with the young guys. I never worked with the young guys. I always work with these executives. And then I thought to myself, what the hell? I joined to have fun. What I'm doing is not fun anymore. Dealing with freaking drama and all this other stuff. I've done everything I've wanted to do right then there. I looked at my computer screen, turned it off, packed my briefcase, never went back to work. Just like that. I (laughs) I said to my wife, I, uh, I'm quitting RCMP. And she goes, well, when thinking like a year or whatever? No, no, no. I'm sending an email tonight. And so she says, well, what are you going to do? I says, I got no idea. Bartender. She goes, over my dead body you're not coming home at four or five o'clock at night you're you're an old man you're not gonna do that (laughs) i came home
0: i i I, calvin i bet you your boss is sitting at his desk right now looking at his watch going i'll give him another 10 minutes on that break and then i'm really gonna call
1: (laughs) yeah i wanted something completely different i enjoy talking to people i enjoy meeting new people and I enjoy mixology in terms of um, with scale and tequilas and that. But anyway, so I quickly then got dragged back into national security, foreign state activity, you know, transnational networks, threats, risk. And all of a sudden I got out of it and I was back into on the private side with people being missed or disappearing in Syria to then uh, foreign operators, possibly targeting uh, Canadian businessmen to elicit finance issues, etc. So I got involved in that in the private sector, and it continued to be with the uh, critical risk team, which is a collective group managed by uh, three of us, inclusive of uh, my American uh, business partner, uh, Mark Fari, who's former FBI out of uh, Miami. And the three of us are in this space working in the private sector with C-suite executives, law firms, investing companies, uh, NGOs. But a lot of our work is in that space of uh, the contemporary risks and threats posed by foreign actors. Not all, but uh, a fair amount of our uh, work is in that space. And we're very boutique, and we've got people from our intelligence backgrounds, from uh, military backgrounds and ourselves, and police backgrounds, obviously, working in that space with our clients.
0: And from that, you started to see criminality in Canada, right?
1: I started seeing those state actors and that high-level stuff back in 2007 and continued to see it till the time I uh, left the federal police force. Then I went into the private sector and I thought, you know, I'm going to miss that intrigue and insight relative to what's going on in the after dark, so to speak. And then I got involved in the private side and I realized quite quickly... My visibility on the private side was equal to what I was seeing on the government side, because so much of to what was going on in the cities, in the communities, in the corporate boardrooms, in the law offices, was concerning in terms of foreign state actors and the illicit activities that were taking place. But nobody was talking to the government or the police about it because of the reputational risk issue. So it was this almost underground threat environment, this invisible wall between government and the private sector in this space.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a wall between private practice and the government. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about global competition from your perspective in Canada?
1: Yeah. The lens here is very clear. We are the fourth largest port in North America. Long Beach, L.A., New York, then Vancouver. The reality is, in terms of illicit activities and foreign threat actives, are equal to any of those large cities, and maybe even greater than New York, greater than L.A., and greater than Long Beach. Why? Because in Long Beach, L.A., and New York, you have the FBI, you've got the Homeland Security, you've got DEA, You have all the other federal agencies. You have a very robust legal system and authorities compared to what we have here. And our legal system constrains us significantly. So what we see here, particularly in Toronto and Vancouver, is the convergence of the threat activities and the threat actors from the Iranian networks and from the Chinese that are collaborating with the cartel. And when I watched Netflix, when it first came out... The you show know, Narcos? Yes. Okay. And when I came home to watch it, it was like the continuation of my working day. The same names, the same families, the people were flying in, the people were flying out. I don't mean that just the same cartels. I'm not talking about just the Sinaloa, not just the Guadalajara not just the Zetas or, or whatever. I'm talking about the real people and characters and the leaders of the cartel or their brother or their wife or their daughter or whatever else. Right. They convergence here for transshipment to the world's largest new market. So what are you going to do? Throw it on a whole bunch of trucks, 2,000 trucks a day coming across the border and three or four of them or five of them are going to have something on it. That was the whole strategy. Rather than doing large shipments, guzman took the ants mentality and sent two thousand ants and if we pick off you know one ant or two ants every couple weeks or a month it really wasn't going to have any negative impact in terms of risk considerations for himself and his operations
0: and the bulk load is a lot more but it's it's very similar to smurfing yeah cool
1: a b- very very wise intelligence risk management strategy on behalf of the cartels and then it had the two networks that were uh, desperately uh, interested in collaborating, and that was the uh, Chinese networks and the uh, Iranian networks.
0: So the illicit criminal networks, the, uh, the Chinese mob, the Iranians, and probably the North Koreans, it sounds like, have some connection with the cartels.
1: Yeah. We saw in Vancouver and Toronto significant Iranian networks and Chinese networks with the cartels, And we saw that in the narco sphere, in the money laundering domain. And now the interconnectivity between these narco issues and illicit finance issues, and I reference a book that's coincidentally sitting in front of me called Willful Blindness, written by Sam Cooper, who documented this. And then it got into the political foreign interference, the corruption, the espionage, the fentanyl issues on and on and on. And a lot of people don't realize the fentanyl actually took place on the streets of Vancouver before anywhere else. When we first started seeing it, there was hardly anything in the US. And when you look at the main players globally in the world, you'll see that a lot of them have ties to Vancouver in terms of the top triads. And coincidentally, we were seeing a lot of family members of the top cartel folks hanging out here regularly. The approach isn't congruent with the needs uh, to deal with the threats.
0: Right. So do you see it as a risk to them being in the Five Eyes?
1: Yeah. The conversations I've had inside, and now I can safely say outside, there has been a growing, increasing concern with Canada Within the five eyes, and I think we saw, you know, the response to that with the security pact
0: Arcus. between
1: this, yeah. yeah, and, you know, there was a lot of suggesting that it was just a some pact when most other people already anticipated and suspected it was much more, and then as it's evolved in a very short time, in the last, whatever it is, year or less, you know, quantum came into being other technologies. They're going to have huge, huge impact on national security. Right. I think Canada sadly got dependent on uh, China, not only financially but politically.
0: Right. It become undeniable to the infrastructure.
1: I really don't think that there's a real good public dialogue in Canada from anyone. Everybody I look at that's engaged in this. Seems to be influenced and compromised, certainly based on where their funding sources are, you know, and that's that that includes even the NGOs. And there's a increasing concern within some circles of academia and think tanks that even some of the NGOs have been influenced to take a a term out there. I don't think there is such a term, but I'll make it up uh, today uh, to vanillaize the narrative on the degree of concerns and threat activities in Canada.
0: Sure, this is one of the challenges. We promote interdependency because we're trying to keep a global economic system afloat, but we do it in a way to where we try to leverage partners in order to gain foreign policy goals. But it's a double-edged sword because countries like China and Russia, they also know the skill of diplomacy and intertangling of economics and politics, and it can be just as impactful to us. And it's a challenge to try to keep that balance.
1: It is, and particularly with our political systems, you know, where we're on these four-year cycles, and these other people are on these 10, 15-year cycles.
0: Well, they just um, let themselves into power for as long as they want.
1: Yeah, and they're in the game of chess, and we're in the game of (laughs) <laughs> 52 pickup in, in terms of everything that we're doing is reactionary and extremely concerned about it
0: yeah I, I could see why because without a good strategy you can't compete with another person's strategy i was explaining to a friend of mine about taiwan and that is if their narrative only focuses on their relationship to china then china has already won yeah. until taiwan builds its own narrative of how it positions itself in the world and its relationship to the international community, it will never overcome the conditions that it's in right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are almost up to an hour. Is there any last thoughts?
1: Well, I don't know if it fits. I can make it fit, but I guess I'm the editor. <laughs> Yeah. Throw it out. And, and probably because it ties back to the original part of the conversation, you know, if that uh, we all take the time to reflect and uh, ensure that we're doing our due diligence and making efforts to do the right thing to uh, protect the interest of uh, the next generation like others before us did.
0: I said that's an excellent close. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.